Father God, as we come before you this morning, we acknowledge that we are finite and you are infinite. We live in the here and now, questioning and wondering, but Lord, you live outside of time and are sovereign over all. Because of that, you continue to be faithful to your people. Lord, you never change, but are the same from eternity past and will be for eternity future. Your faithful love for your people can never be questioned. Your faith, for your faithfulness is rooted in your character. It isn't dependent on external circumstances, but remains constant and steadfast. Lord, we confess that we are not like you. While you are faithful and steadfast, we are unfaithful and quickly forget our commitments. Our unfaithfulness, Lord, is, is rooted in a deep doubt of you. We question you, doubt you, and wander from you. For we believe that we can do better on our own. Lord, our unfaithfulness does not glorify you. Father, forgive us for acting this way. For, forgive us for un, acting unfaithfully to you. For we tend and can deny you with our, our mouths and with our lives when they do not align with your commands. Lord, cause our hearts to fall more in love with you so that unfaithfulness becomes distasteful to us, that we long to be near you and to walk in obedience to you. Father, thank you for faithfully forgiving us when we do wander from you. Thank you for what you have accomplished in our lives. And Father God, we give you praise that you are not like us, that you forgive us and welcome us back to yourself. We also thank you, Lord, for gospel-minded ministries around the world that are similar to us. This morning, we pray for the Garcias who have been called to the Philippines. Lord, we thank you for their heart and passion for the churches in that country. Lord, we ask that you would demonstrate your faithfulness to them. That they, that, that they would preach the gospel, that Jared would faithfully preach the gospel there and raise up healthy churches. Lord, may they always know your faithfulness and despite the difficulties that, faith, that ministry brings, that you would always be with them. This morning, we also pray for ourselves. Lord, we especially pray for all of the young moms here at Mission Fellowship. Lord, the early years of motherhood can be a roller coaster sleepless nights, frustrating tantrums, and yet sweet bonding moments that can combine to exhausting one's emotions. Lord, may the young moms here at Mission not lose hope. We pray that they would be faithful in the task that you would get, have given to them, that their efforts in parenting would be seen as discipleship, Lord. Lord, give them endurance and their faithfulness that images your faithful love for your children. And Lord, we pray for the word this morning. Be with Hans as he has studied your word and may what he says be of you, Lord. And may it plant seeds in our life that bear fruit in the days to come. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Thank you, Nick. And this morning, you can open your Bibles to Psalms 10 and 13. We will be reading out of 13 in a moment. My wife and I were once on a scuba trip in Cozumel near Mexico. And one afternoon we were asked if we wanted to dive a shipwreck that was a short boat ride away. 
Now, I had never done a dive with this level of enclosed areas or overhead environments, and so I, being a bit of a worrywart, if you didn't know that about me, I was a bit nervous. I'd heard lots of stories about things going wrong in wreck dives, and it's easy to get lost, find yourself in small rooms and stir up debris that can blind you to finding the exit where you get stuck in the room. And so again, I was a bit nervous. But other divers who were with us assured us that this was one of the easiest and most open wreck dives you can try. So we went ahead with it. Well, we got to the dive site. We went down to depth, about 100 feet or so. And we started going through the wreck. And we decided that we would go in a certain order because the corridors were pretty narrow. And I found myself in the middle of the line with my wife in front of me and a couple of older divers behind me. What I didn't know was that the older divers behind me, they were advanced divers, and they'd been on this wreck multiple times, and they were very comfortable. They had not let me know that, but I had not. And so at one point, I look behind me to make sure they're following me, and they're lagging farther and farther behind, and I'm thinking it's my job that I need to get them closer and help them keep up. And so at one point, I go back to get them, but I was thinking I was going to help them from getting lost, but they had backtracked and decided that they were going to go a different way without alerting anyone to it. So there I was in the middle of a wreck chasing after them as they went a different way when I quickly realized that I was also now becoming separated from my wife and the party in front of us and I couldn't move that quickly because I didn't want to stir up debris. Now the party in front of me had the dive master. When I couldn't find the pair behind me, I turned around to find the others and realized that they were gone as well. And for a moment, I knew what it was to feel completely alone. Because it was not only that I was alone in that corridor physically, but it was a, a sense, it was a weight of hopelessness as if no one could help me if I got in trouble. And that compounded the physical nature of being alone. Now, friends, it sounds far more dramatic than it actually was in reality. The ship had multiple portholes that I could have ascended through if I'd been in trouble. But in that moment, you have to remember that one of the main reasons that I personally dive is to constantly fight against a strong phobia of the ocean. I'm scared to death of the water. And from my emotional perspective, with all the weight of the stories I'd heard about, other dive emergencies flooding my mind, I felt completely and utterly alone. I felt like all had abandoned me, and my perspective at that moment, my feelings presented themselves as empirical truth of a situation, and yet they were factually errant. Now, praise God, I came quickly to my senses, took a breath, and exited where I could and went around the wreck until I could find the rest of the group who, when I found them, seemed calm and cool and collected. But for me, it was a heavy feeling I won't forget. That moment where one feels completely and utterly alone, as if I'd been abandoned by both man and God. Now, it's an unfortunate part of the human condition, but it's a part that we all feel. We feel, at times, alone. A simple mention of the state of loneliness evokes in most of us a strong reaction. Friend, have you ever felt alone, as if abandoned by God and man? It's the most helpless feeling that there is. Now, every one of us has experienced that moment in life. Perhaps we were truly alone, or even more disheartening, we have felt alone while surrounded 
by people or supposed friends. The loneliness we feel is because we believe that we are the exception to the community that we see flourishing around us. Have you ever felt that? As a pastor, I'm blessed to be the listening ear to those who feel like they are the outsider and the disenfranchised. But what I can never adequately communicate to those that feel alone as the only one that doesn't belong is that everyone feels that way at one time or another. It just matters the context, the people, and the timing. There are those of you sitting here today that feel like you are the only one that does not belong in this room, that does not belong in this church. But if I had you raise your hands, which I won't, don't worry. If I had you raise your hands, you'd be amazed at the number of people that would raise their hands and say, yeah, I feel that way as well. But that's part of the loneliness, isn't it? Our heart and Satan collude to lie to us that we are alone and abandoned. But then there are those times where we not only feel distance from one another, but we feel distance from our Creator. As one who has walked with the Lord for a few decades now, I can say that it has not been uncommon that external pressures or internal cares of the heart have led me to a place where I felt as though God had turned his back on me, as though he had given up on me, as though he had pulled his spirit away from me. Seasons where I have felt overcome with temptation and even personal sin. Situations of abandonment or betrayal from those close to me. Seasons of physical sickness or suffering. Or maybe even a time of overwhelming sadness at the sin I have seen and its contrast with the deep desire to be with Christ. Friends, when I first started the church, in the early days of the church, right before the first Easter that we celebrated, I had a moment where I was curled in the fetal position, crying out to the other elder of the church, begging him to pray for me because I felt such a weight of spiritual darkness in my life. I felt abandoned by God and man. In all of these times, I have cried out in my humanity to ask God why he has forgotten me, why he has hidden himself from me, and I guarantee I'm not the only one in this room. Perhaps the hardest to endure are the times where we deem an action by another as a great injustice, and it seems as if God has turned a blind eye, or worse yet, God seems to prosper the very person who has propagated the injustice. And I've noticed a distinct increase in the number of Christians questioning where God is as the world seems overcome with injustice and blatant rebellion, especially in the last few years. Where is God? Why does it seem like he is uninterested in the heartache of man or the heartache of his people? Friends, do any of these sound familiar to you? Have you ever felt this great loneliness? As we read through the whole of Scripture, we find that this is a state that all of mankind has felt. The amazing thing is that this is not just the state that non-believers must endure, but it is felt by God's people as well. It's a very normal part of our finite mortal existence among a world wrecked with original sin. And this morning, David will stand as a representative of all mankind as he wrestles with this same question in these two psalms. But David, as we know his story, was one who was actually abandoned by people around him. It wasn't just his feet excuse me, feelings, it was actuality. Being the anointed of God, he had many enemies who wanted to disrupt his reign. But the feeling of abandonment went even deeper than that. He felt forgotten by God himself, the very one who had anointed him. And so this morning, we will listen to David outline the trouble that leads us to question God's presence and his care so that we can see it for what it is. 
And we will also thankfully see his solution for those moments when God seems to hide himself. And so if you are a person who's struggled with this in your own life, if you're a person who feels as though God is hiding himself now, this is going to be a wonderful lesson for you to understand what to do when God seems to hide himself. Thus far in the Psalms, we have looked at the the Psalter, which is just another name for the book of Psalms. We've done so in sequence. But today we're going to look at Psalms 10 and 13. We're going to break it up a bit. And we heard a portion of Psalm 10 in our earlier reading. But let's collectively worship the Lord now by reading together his word from Psalm 13. And I want to encourage you again, uh, if you have a different translation, you're going to hear different words. We're going to be reading primarily from the ESV, but I want to encourage you as you read to read in the emotion and tone of the psalm. And so as we read it, let's read it as if David were saying it himself. So let's read it together now, starting in Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord... Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. In the beginning of both Psalms, we hear a question that is all too familiar. And I have called it this morning, the question of a finite heart to an infinite God. The question of a finite heart to an infinite God. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Do these questions sound familiar? Have you uttered them yourself? I know I have. As we looked at Psalm 8, Last week, and compared it to Romans 1, the whole of creation and our very existence speaks to the reality and the presence of God as creator. His creation declares that he is powerful and creative and good. We, as humanity, were put onto the planet to declare and reflect this fact in his benevolent reign as king, not just of the world, but of the universe. And yet he is a God who is wholly and completely different from his creation. He is outside of it and above it in authority. Friends, it was this realization of the largeness, if you will, of God, the the greatness of God, that the great American theologian Jonathan Edwards was brought into the fullness of salvation when he understood this and read this in the simple line of 1 Timothy 1.17, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This simple statement shows how different he is, how other he is than his creation. The creator God is the authority over all of humanity's existence. 
He is immortal. He has no beginning. He has no end. He will not die. He is invisible because he is spirit, not material nature. And he alone is God. In these ways, we cannot, nor will we ever, fully comprehend his greatness and glory. We will see him as he is in the resurrected Christ, in the restored heaven and earth, but the fullness of God is unknowable to anyone except God. We will spend our lives working out and striving to know him more. And we will, that's how big God is, we will learn about him and know him more and more every moment of eternity, but that will never end because of his greatness. And that is why he had to condescend to mankind so that we might be able to even interact with him and have some form of his knowledge and his glory. For we cannot ascend to him without his help. And so, is it any wonder that in our mortality, which is but a breath according to the word, we are unable to see the immortal God at work? Our brief glimpse of eternity limits us in our ability to even see God's hand because he is eternal, immortal, invisible. But we know, even with this fact, that he is intimately involved in his creation because of two things. One is our experience of this life, and the other, and probably more valid, is the inspired knowledge given to us through the word of God. You see, for those of us who are older in this room, we can look back at our very brief lives. Even if you're 100 years old in this room, you've had a brief life in the scheme of the cosmos. And you can see the guiding hand of God on literally every moment. I can only speak for myself, but looking back now at almost 44 years old, I can see it especially present in those times where I felt the most abandoned by God. He was actually the most present. The circumstances in my life and even in my own heart made it hardest to look through the darkness to see the light that was ever present. But it was those moments, those times of trouble where God most shaped my understanding of him and his faithfulness and steadfast love. But a second way that I know that God's hand is always at work is through the story of his people in the word of God. How many times in the word do the Israelites represent us well by crying out, wondering where God is? How many times did they dispute him as if he has been faithless to them? In the garden, it takes barely any time at all before Eve, with the help of the accuser, is questioning whether or not God has their best interest in mind. She's literally standing in a paradise made for her, and she's going, I'm not so sure he's present. To Abraham, it seemed like an eternity for God to grant him offspring. And in our eyes, it kind of was, right? Multiple decades. So because he believed himself smarter than God, he wasn't patient and took things into his own hands. Not even a few days out of freedom from slavery in Egypt, the Israelites complained to Moses that they had had it better in Egypt, delusionally recalling fictitious baskets of bread and meat rather than the starvation they most definitely endured. And this is just the beginning of the Bible, guys. We haven't gotten past Exodus yet. <laughs> time and time again, Israel looks to God, and because he was not operating in their timeline, according to their mortal and temporal existence and experience, his character was called into question. The proof of God's good and loving involvement, though, is blatantly apparent 
When we look to his word and we see the fullness of the story, for there we see that he is always at work to bring about his purposes that are ultimately for his glory and the eternal good of his people and the perfection of his creation that we, in our tiny little timeline, often cannot see. This applies to exodus and exile and persecution and pain and suffering and ultimately the cross. And it is only when we remember that we are finite, but he is infinite, that we will receive a heart of patience, a definite fruit of the Spirit, so that we might find the peace that comes with trusting God through whatever we are encountering. When we slow down and remember that we are finite and mortal and that he is infinite and immortal, we can look back at all that he has done to reset our minds to who he is and know his steadfast, enduring love. If you remember from last week, one of the main points of Psalm 9 is to do just this, to remember all that God has done, to remember his wonderful deeds. And Psalm 10 flows right from this. There is even debate among Hebrew scholars that maybe the two, Psalms 9 and 10, should most likely be joined into one large psalm. And so it flows, 9 into 10, it flows from remembering God's deeds to then doubt that we've read today in Psalm 10 to David forcing himself to rely upon the truth of Christ's actions, God's actions, for his people throughout time. What a wonderful reminder of what we can do to reset our hearts and minds to the truth of God's goodness in the midst of heartache. Friends, this week, I want to encourage you to sit down and purposefully recall and maybe even journal the Lord's goodness to you over the extent of your short and finite life. He has shown himself gracious and patient and merciful and steadfast, has he not? And so you can sit and remember what he has done so you can remind yourself that God is not hidden. You can remind yourself how close he has been to you. Friends, remember his great work. Remember his infinite character in your finite life. And friends, that's even why we get into the word we get into the word to remember his steadfast love. I read an article recently about this mind-blowing survey and study that they'd done where they figured out that what we put our minds on in the morning is going to set the tone for the rest of the day. And they talked about all these different waves of the brain. I'm not going to tell you I'm a medical guy or even a scientist, but they talked about different waves of the brain and how it operates first thing in the morning. And so if you pick up your phone and you doom scroll, guess what you're going to be feeling the rest of the day? Doom, right? But if you get into the word and you read of God's steadfast love, imagine what it will do to the rest of your day. You will remember that God is steadfastly loving. He has not forsaken you. He is with you. And he loves you because you are his. But we often forget this, don't we? We often forget this because we are hurried in our limitation and mortality and a finite existence. And so David summarizes all that we will encounter that leads us to question God's care and his presence by looking at two places trouble comes from. First, external trouble and then internal trouble. Let's look at the first and we'll see external trouble that leads us to question, to question God's love, to question God's character and his presence. Would you read with me again? Uh, not out loud, but just you can read it as I say it aloud. In Psalm 10, we're going to read verses 2 through 13. 
or excuse me, verses 2 through 11. We'll get to 12 and 13 in a moment. It says there in Psalm 10, verse 2, In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages in hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. If you will notice in these two Psalms, there are four places where the human condition speaks of God as if he is hidden. Both entry points we just looked at into the Psalms have the question of whether or not God has hidden himself, but these will result, as we will see, in a humility that leads the questioner to seek after God for help and and to pray for God to grant them trust in difficult times. But there are two other points here in Psalm 10 where God is also declared as hidden. And these are in stark contrast to the humility found in David crying out, questioning why God is hidden. Now, these declarations, they come from the wicked, the one who purposes to dismiss God's authority on the earth. We see it first in 10.4 as the wicked declares, not that God is hidden, but in rebellious atheism states, there is no God. The hidden nature of God to this rebellious heart is seen as a good thing. For then the wicked can act as if there is no authority to whom they must give account. They live in practical atheism. And David gives us a description of the one that lives in that practical atheism. They will actually look and renounce God and say, he will not see. He will never see it. He has hidden his face, verse 11. And so this section of scripture that David gives us is David, what David has noticed in the wicked, in those hearts that don't cry out to God in seeking him, but desire that distance. They take that idea of, is God hidden, and turn it into a practical atheism. And friends, if we're not careful, our heart will lead there in those moments where we feel alone because we take out our anger upon God. We take out our anger upon those who have seemingly abandoned us because our feelings give us that lordship. And so we can take this list this morning and we can use it to check our own hearts to see if any of these characteristics are showing when we start to declare God hidden. Are we seeking after him or are we sitting in the place of the wicked? If so, we must repent and turn to him instead. So let's look through that list really quickly. He points out four things. First, David notes a pride that leads to arrogant self-exaltation. A pride that motivates the prideful to pursue the vulnerable so that they might use them for their own purposes. It looks at people and sees their abandonment not as a hurt, but as a refusal to give you what you've earned and are entitled to. It begins to see other people as objects to be used. Now, their arrogance and haughtiness leads them to boast of their wicked desires that are in direct opposition of God's authority. Their pride leads to elevating their own desires above God's authority. Does this sound familiar? 
Does it sound like the very month that we're in and that this month is now named after? A pride that elevates human desires above God's authority. Friends, we live in a day where we celebrate prideful opposition to God's natural law and order. And the brazenness with which it is flaunted shows that there is no fear of God whatsoever. We have become a society that simply uses one another, objectifies each other for our own arrogant self-exaltation. If we're not careful when we feel abandoned by God and man, it can lead us to a place where we feel justified to do just this, to push aside people, to start to use them and to view them as objects. Second, it seems as though God is hidden because this pride that has led to a brazen and arrogant self-exaltation seems to prosper and be secure in its wickedness. There's a seeming security and prosperity among the wicked that David sees. This is part of why he's saying, God, are you not paying attention? Why are you hidden? They're not held to account. Their, their pride and their injustice is not stopped. It's as if God welcomes it and seems to prosper their way. We look at them and we say, in this moment, they seem like they're secure. We use our finite view to decide whether or not God is just. And the wicked do the same. They snort or huff at their adversaries and proclaim that they will not be deterred from their way. They will stand firm because they are justified. But friends, let's just pause there for a second to use this as a case study of where our finite, limited minds cannot comprehend the long game of God's just action and character. We see groups that are so contrary to God's authority seeming to grow an influence in our world, and so we as Christians cry out asking God where he is in all this. We look at the world and we say, why are the wicked gaining ground? But friends, notice in verse 5, notice what it says there. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. This means that God's judgment is always moving. It's not just on the last day. That is the the final piece of it. His judgments are always moving, but just not in the way that we can understand. For Romans 1 declares that it is part of God's judgment to give the wicked over to their heart's desire, to allow them to believe that they are secure in their sin. So they dig their own hole in a sense. In doing so, they voluntarily harden their own hearts and put an exclamation point on the depravity of their own souls, making it clear for Judgment Day that they are against God. In other words, they are calling down the judgment of God upon themselves merely by God's patience. His patience is his judgment in some cases. And so when we see prosperity, or at least what looks like prosperity and security to us, it may be God's blessing to a person but it also may be his judgment. The key is to see all things through the filter of God's truth and his authority. If God's glory is the result of that prosperity, then it's from God and blessing. But if it's the opposite, then it's from his judgment. For time and truth are friends, and God will be found true, and every man will be found a liar. So we must be patient to see the hand of God at work in both judgment and in grace. Well, third, David notes that it is a characteristic of the wicked that walk in a practical atheism, that their speech will be vile in its rebellion against God. Note the adjectives that David uses, cursing, deceit, oppression, mischief, iniquity. 
The communication of the wicked is to raise themselves in selfishness, to boast of their heart's evil desires. In no way, shape, or form will it reflect the goodness of God or lead to a place where God is glorified. It's in stark contrast to what David is doing in crying out and asking God if he is present. And fourth and finally, David notes that the wicked are violent in their desire to destroy the righteous. The wicked lurks in dark spaces to jump onto the vulnerable and innocent so that they might be captured and drawn into their net and destroyed. In the minds of the wicked, all the righteous do is to bring a reminder of the God that they are rebelling against and that they want to forget. And so they view the righteous as the enemy to be destroyed. The world would be a better place, they say, if the righteous would just disappear. And they will feel no hesitation, for they believe in their practical atheism that God does not see this heart stance, he does not see this sin. And if we find ourselves in this place where we begin distancing from God and his people and holding them in derision, we are walking into this practical atheism without realizing it. Twice in the last week, I have heard self-proclaimed Christians say the phrase, I feel more comfortable in the world than I do with God's people. Friends, you should be very scared if you ever utter those words because you are starting to stand in the place of the wicked. God is among his people. And to stand on the side of the world is to be at enmity with God. Be careful, friends, that your sadness, that your feeling of abandonment doesn't lead you to a place where you begin to curse God and man, where you become a practical atheist simply because your heart tells you it is so. Like David, though, being surrounded by the pressing reality of this level of rebellion, it seems to press us into only two hopeless options. To either give in and join in the wickedness and rebellion that comes with practical atheism, or to fret in hopelessness and discouragement. It can feel overwhelming, and so we wonder where God is. Perhaps you have direct experience with this in your life at the moment. Perhaps there is injustice being leveled at you, or perhaps you are just seeing the unreal level of rebellion against God that has consumed every aspect of our culture and society. Perhaps that is what has led you, that external trouble has led you to question whether or not God is present. But friend, the word is here today to tell us that you don't need to give into discouragement or hopelessness, for there is a third option. And that is to cry out to God so that you can find solace in his character. And David, in exasperation at the sin he sees around him, does just this. Look at verses 12 and 13 in Psalm 10. Arise, O Yahweh, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account. He remembers who God is and he goes to him and says, Lord, I know you can do something about this. I trust in you. You need to arise. And he calls out to God. He goes to God in humility, asking for him to act. But before we press further into this, there is another trouble that often leads us to question. So let's next look at the description David gives of what leads us to question God's presence and care in terms of internal trouble. Internal trouble that leads us to question God's presence and God's care. Would you take a look at Psalm 13 and read verses 2 through 4 with me? 
How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Yahweh, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. In this psalm, David shows that his trouble is not external, as with Psalm 10. Yes, there is a mention of foes here, but his main focus to begin is internal. Friends, if he were sitting with a counselor, there most likely would be a diagnosis here of depression or anxiety. For the pain comes from within. He is looking for his soul to heal. He is looking for counsel from God, and yet all he seems to be able to do is take counsel within himself. He is closed up upon himself. And all he finds when he looks internally and is introspective is sorrow all the day. He wonders, as if in dread, how long will this last? Is this going to go on forever? For when we are in the midst of darkness and sadness and depression, every second seems as if it's an eternity, does it not? Whether this is a physical enemy that he's talking about, or maybe even the adversary, Hasatan, Satan, the adversary of God, David feels like he can't win. You ever feel like that? Like you get up in the morning and you think, I just can't seem to win. Nothing is going my way. That's where David was. He was in a place where he had no hope. And so he's calling for God to answer him. He obviously feels as though the Lord has been silent to him and is ignoring him. He needs answers and understanding of what is going on in his life, or else it might seem that death is the better option for him. But then he wonders if that would just encourage those who were persecuting him and coming against him. It's as as if he is wondering whether or not they are hoping for his death, then they might rejoice. Does this resonate with you as well? I find in counseling that David's descriptions of depression are pretty accurate. He doesn't use the technical language, but boy, he hits it on the head. Often people are stuck within themselves and can't see outside their own false perceptions. Perhaps in some cases, this is a matter of selfishness as the self is all that receives focus. That can be the case. But then I have also encountered others that wish and are begging for an understanding outside of themselves, but seem almost as if in bondage to their feelings that won't seem to go away. They are clawing as if against a wall in a doorless room, trying to find their way out. There's often uh, an accompanying level of paranoia about others or circumstances in which they find themselves. Go lock yourself in a room and try to get out and see how quickly you become anxious. That's why anxiety creeps up. And sometimes this leads to a feeling that others might be better off without them. And there is no solution to their feelings or problems except the potential that the sleep of death might solve their concerns. Friends, this is far too common in our society today and even within the church. Praise God that he gave us the example of David. David is one we can look at, not as a moral exemplar, not as one that we are to grow toward, but as one who was very much a broken sinner like you and I, that was granted the gracious mercy of God 
in spite of his sin. We can look at David and know that we are not abnormal, that we are not alone in the pain that we feel. It is a natural part of life amidst the brokenness of original sin. And Maybe that's all the Lord is trying to give you today is a knowledge and understanding that you are not alone, that he and his people are with you, that David himself, the man after God's own heart, the anointed of God, has felt these same things. So maybe you feel like David today. Or maybe you have in the past, or maybe you will in the future. Maybe there's external trouble that is causing you to question God's presence and care for you in this world. Maybe it is simply that the wicked seem to prosper and the long-promised justice and judgment of God seems just as far off as ever. Maybe you are encountering internal trouble and that is leading you to cry out to God wondering where he is and if there is any hope or any end in sight. Friends, if that has ever been you, or maybe that is you today, David can help you with what we should all do when we find ourselves questioning God's existence, his presence, and his care for us. And that is what we will finish with this morning, as we, along with David, find solace in the infinite character of God. There is a massive contrast laid out in these two psalms, primarily Psalm 10, where the wicked and the righteous are contrasted in the way that they respond to the questioning we've just looked at. For the wicked, the response is to state empirically that God does not exist, so they might make themselves Lord over good and evil and do as their heart desires. They're, they're going to push forward, and they're going to become the wicked because everyone else has hurt them, and therefore they should hurt as well. They're justified in objectifying. And theirs is a practical atheism that is desired and pursued. It is almost relished so that the lordship of self can reign and Christ can be toppled. Now for the righteous, in a sense, theirs starts in the same way. It is a practical atheism that begins to doubt the existence and presence and help of God, the very God that creation proclaims is always present. But there is a large difference of heart between the two, if you will notice. The heart of the righteous does not continue in that practical atheism, but sees it for what it is and then actually leans the other way, leans into God. They lean into him to submit themselves to him when they cry out, How long, O Lord? Nick pointed this out wonderfully two weeks ago. To cry this is to cry as the vulnerable party to the authority asking when that authority might bring forth the benevolent judgment and reign that you know he is covenanted to provide. And you trust in that covenant. That's why you're asking the question. It's not to hold him in derision. It's to say, Lord, I know your character. So why is the world going this way? And because this is the heart stance, the practical atheism that might be tempting their heart is put down and removed in favor of looking to the Lord to bring the solace and peace that you know he can. And one form of questioning God's presence, it, it distances from and ignores God. That's the wicked. But then the righteous pursue him, knowing that life is found in him alone. And notice how David does this. He first remembers God's omniscience and omnipresence. In the midst of trouble, when he looks to God, he first reminds himself that God is omniscient. He's all-knowing and omnipresent, all-present. 
Not present in that he exists in the trees or the rocks. We don't practice panentheism, as the pagans do, but that he is just simply present because guess what? He is over his creation, through his creation, in his creation, bigger than his creation. He's God. And so we remind ourselves of this because our finite minds simply seem to forget it. Take a look at 10.14. But you do see. Notice he's reminding himself. He's saying, I don't really believe in my feelings and emotions that God sees, but, but you do see, for you note mischief. Not only does God see it, he notes it. He takes it down to deal with it. He notes mischief and vexation. For what reason? That you may take it into your hands, that you may work with it and deal with it. And so therefore, to you, the helpless commits himself, for you have been the helper of the fatherless. He notes that God sees and notes the mischief and vexation that he may take it into his hands and deal with it. God, friends, is not ignoring things. It is an impossibility for God to ignore for he is all-knowing and all-present. So he is always present to see all that's going on, and he knows it innately. He can't ignore it. It's an impossibility to a creator that is omniscient and omnipresent. The deist God of the enlightenment that has pervaded our culture and our schools and our, our homes and our hearts is a false God that many believe is the God of the Bible. It's the God of the heretical view that's been resurrected called open theism, where God's simply the inventor of systems and logic, and he's the watchmaker God who spins up the watch and lets it work and shoves it aside and stands at a distance and watches. He's the God who stays away because it's too messy. But friends, that is not the God of the Bible. That is a false God. The God of the Bible is a God who intimately knows and sees our pain and promises to bring justice to his creation. And he can promise this because he has already acted to do just that in the cross of Christ. And he can promise this because guess what? He knows the end from the beginning. He is the one who is over all of it. Friends, when we feel God is distant, we have to remind ourselves that our feelings are not truth, but merely perception. Friends, we are like that brand new, newborn baby that is five feet away from its parent in the room that's dark because the parent knows better that the baby needs sleep. And what do we do as the babies? We cry because mom and dad have abandoned us, not knowing at all that they're right there and they love us more than ever and they're there for us and they will stay with us. It's like us as adults, we all need to like listen to Daniel Tiger, grown-ups come back, right? Like we all, God is going to come back, right? We all need to hear this song constantly because we're like the little kid that thinks that the parent has left us when in fact that's not the case at all. Those of you with little kids, I appreciate the laugh, thank you. God is intimately involved and present in your life as God. He has never left you, nor will he ever leave you or forsake you. We have to remember his omniscience and his omnipresence. Next, David, still even with this, he petitions God to act. He cries out to God to act. And in doing so, he's bringing his will into alignment with God's. Notice in verse 15, he says, 
Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. In our current day culture, we we might look at this and say, well, that's kind of mean. No, it's not at all. It's calling for God to act. It's calling for his justice. David wants God to take away the power of the wicked and bring him to justice. He wants him to wipe out the evil that surrounds him. Friends, this is a godly prayer. This is what we are called to pray. It's what's called an imprecatory request. There are entire psalms that are imprecatory, but this is just a part of the larger psalm of lament. And if we understand the sin that is behind wickedness, we will ask God to break its power. Friends, how often do you in your prayer life pray for God to act in justice, to break the power of the wicked in your life and in the world around us? For the judgment he is asking for is the eventuality of the gospel. And so we must pray for it. Christ's salvific work is a work that has and will destroy the work of the wicked. And it's okay to bring that to God so that we can remember that he is just. And we can ask for him to carry out his will of justice and peace. And in so doing, our hearts realign with him. Third, David then reminds himself of God's omnipotence. Not only his omniscience and omnipresence, not only his just nature, but then he reminds himself of God's omnipotence. Look at verse 16. The Lord, Yahweh, is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Notice the infinite and eternal nature of the authority described here. God is king forever and ever. This is never a point. There is never a point where he does not reign. When our hearts tell us that he has stepped aside or forgotten us or the rest of creation, we must remind ourselves of this truth. He is all-powerful, and the nations that currently rage or strive for power will be removed from the land at his decree. If he is omnipotent, then we can trust him when he does not immediately act. His will is that justice will be done and shalom will be established. And so the difference between his will to bring justice and our will that justice will be done is often just a matter of timing. And so reminding ourselves of his omnipotence will help us to gain patience and trust in the midst of difficulty. Fourth, David reminds himself of God's promises. Look at verses 17 and 18. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. David again speaks to the omniscience of God, but adds to it the fact that God is on the side of the vulnerable and the afflicted. And his promise is based out of his character. He is the savior and redeemer of the fatherless and the oppressed. He has told us as his people, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He is faithful to his promises. And so we can trust him even when things don't make sense or our faulty emotions or perceptions say that he is wrong in his promises. Even when our perception of ourselves is that we are worth abandoning, God will not abandon himself, and so he will not prove false to his promises to you. He has promised he will not leave nor forsake his people, and he will hold true to it. Friends, if death itself cannot hold us, then nothing else can. He will hold true to his promises. 
And lastly, we see in Psalm 13 that David reminds himself of God's steadfast love. This is verses 5 and 6 in Psalm 13. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. The word in Hebrew there is hesed. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to Yahweh, sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. We have already seen this as well in the Psalms already. The word there is hesed, as I said, God's steadfast and covenant love. And David can look back at the history of his people and remember that God never has gone back on his steadfast covenant love. Sure, his people have gone through times of great trial and difficulty, but God has always proven true. So David tells his own heart to rejoice in the salvation of God. And he recalls that even in his own life, God has dealt bountifully with him. He has been gracious in all that David has gone through. And David could look back on the story of his life and see that no matter what he faced, be it good or bad, God was faithful. Friends, the, the current psychological culture of today says, sit in your feelings, give them validity, just wallow in them. And friends, you know that I love psychological theory. I went to school for it. I use it in practice. But that will not do you any good because your feelings, your heart is pervasively wicked and wants to be Lord. And what better way to be Lord than to say, I am the only one that is faithful. And when our emotions do that, the best thing you can do is to say, quiet you. Here's the truth. The other day, I was sitting with some folks who were having some struggles around some abandonment issues, and I just asked them the simple question. I said, who hasn't abandoned you? Well, this person and this person and this, and this person. And they had to take their shoes off, right? And, Start listing them off. Wow, we're not abandoning all. There's lots of people that are still in our life. But if they sat in their feelings, all have abandoned me. Right? And that's what David is doing. He's remembering and recalling from life. How many times has God shown up? Why on earth would I be doubting that now? Hey, soul. Hey, heart. Hey, mind. Remember God's goodness. Friends, it is common practice in our day to allow our circumstances to affect our emotions and to let our emotions and perceptions then become Lord. But we have a great example in the Psalms of a man who was in the midst of great difficulty and even great emotional struggle as he lamented to God. And he did not let his emotions rule. As we have seen, he looked to the truth of God's word that displays and defines God's character over and above his circumstances and inner turmoil. And when that did not work, he pointedly chose to bring his emotions under the lordship of God's abiding love and character again and again. You might say, Hans, I, I, I tried the other day. I, I went a whole hour trying to really think about the Lord. Nope. Do it all day long. And then do it the next day, and then do it the next day. But it's not easy. Oh, I know. But this doesn't say it's easy. It says we must do it constantly. I think this is why God gave us this number of psalms written by David to go, <laughs> see? Notice he had to do it over and over and over and over and over. And then he had a little break and then he did it over and over and over, right? I wonder how many of these Psalms David wrote down so that he could simply repeat them to himself over and over and over. And I wonder if this is why the Psalms are known as the worship songbook of God's people, that we are to sing in remembrance over and over and over. For when we do this on repeat, it brings joy and peace to endure through the trial. 
And this is the joy and peace that God gives to his people. It is not a passive joy and peace that we simply wait for. And then when it doesn't automatically come, we believe God to be absent. It is a truth under which we purposefully choose to bring our emotions into submission. And when we find our emotions running contrary to the truth of God's word, we need to realize that we too have the temptation to become practical atheists, to let our hearts rebel against God's truth and God's character, sitting in the mess of our own false truth that will take us farther and farther from God. For when we declare with our emotions and attitudes that God cannot be trusted, we are joining together with the accuser, the same one that brought original sin into our lives in the garden. Instead, let us respond to difficulty and external and internal trouble with worship to the Lord, reminding ourselves of who he has promised to be for his people. He will not abandon us, for he has covenanted with us. Amen? Amen. But you might protest. You might say, Hans, you don't know how far God seems from me. It feels as though the heavens are brass and none of my prayers are getting through. It seems as though God has abandoned me to my own dread and depression. I try to recall God's goodness, you might say, but my heart or my circumstances overwhelm me, and I find myself deeper in the mire of my own brokenness. Well, brother or sister, if, if that is you, and if you find yourself in the depth of that place of loneliness, even then, you will find yourself in the best company because it is there that you can look to the cross of Christ. And you can understand that he knows your pain in a way that no other people will. For it's at the cross of Calvary that God has proven that he will not forsake you. In fact, he will take your place. And even more at the cross, he has actually stepped into that very same spot with you and taken on the burden of original sin and distance from the Father so that you can once again be drawn into the loving arms of your Creator. Through Jesus Christ, God himself entered into humanity to become the perfect high priest that could identify with us in all ways, even abandonment and loneliness, even abandonment from God himself. God himself took on the form of flesh and found himself at the point of the cross, crying out just as David or you or I cry out. God the Son cried out to God the Father, wondering why he had been abandoned and forsaken. Let's look again at that first part of our earlier reading from Mark in verses 33 through 34. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did you see that? Jesus felt that same abandonment that we hear David lamenting. Jesus felt that same abandonment that you feel. He knows what it is like, for he took on the sin of the entire cosmos in that moment. He took on the wickedness of the sin that has been done to us. He took on the sin of our rebellious hearts that sometimes act as if there is no God. He took on the sin of our own hearts that raise our perceptions and feelings against the truth of God's goodness. And so in that moment, Christ became sin for us and knew the weight of being distanced from God more than any of us could ever know. But this is not all, friends. He is not just the great comforter, but he is the one who by this action has actually reconciled you to the Father so that even when your heart testifies you are a sinner deserving distance from God, you can look to the cross. And there you can declare that you have been purchased with the very blood of Jesus that flowed 
from those nail-pierced hands that David noted earlier would take on the mischief and vexation of sin. His blood has purchased you and adopted you into the family of God. And you are his. Nothing can take that away. And because he did this, we can trust in him. Thanks, brother. And go to him in times of need. The author of Hebrews reminds us of this. When he says this in Hebrews 12, uh, 2, 17 through 18, he says there, therefore, he, Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We can go to Christ in our time of need and lament our pain to him, and he will hear us and understand what we are going through and intercede for us to the Father. And then in so doing, we can remind ourselves by looking to the cross of God's goodness and proof that he has our greatest good in mind. Even though things may not make sense around us, the cross has proven God's hesed, his steadfast love. And we can repeat to ourselves over and over again what the author of Hebrews also reminds us of as he reminds himself of the truth that God has promised his great care for us. In Hebrews 13, the second half of verse 5, on to verse 6, it says, For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I have a feeling that many of you are carrying a burden this morning that has you feeling distance from God. How do I know this? Not because I'm a prophet, but because I'm a human. And I know you are too. You are carrying something that is very weighty. And so as we go now to the table of communion, let it remind you that he, Christ, by his Holy Spirit is near and that his cross has proven his love for you and that his resurrection has proven that your heart lies to you because God is near and he has drawn you to himself through the sacrifice of his son. And then as we worship, use it to bring your emotions into submission to the truth of God's character. Let's seek after him as he calls us to. Let's do what David does, which is to worship and rejoice in the goodness of God's character, for then we will know that he is near. When we find ourselves doubting God's character and presence in the lives of his people, we need simply to look at his great deeds, his salvation and his great sacrifice to bring us into his family. And in doing so, we will train our hearts to be patient and wait for his consolation. For God will prove himself faithful in the way that he already has done. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for David. We thank you for his great depth of emotion that often mirrors our own. And in seeing his pain and struggle, we see our own pain and struggle. And we're able to also see 
how he leans on you in those times. And so we pray, God, that we would have the same heart, that we would cry out to you, that we would lean on you, and that we would be reminded of your great deeds. And Lord, your greatest deed is in the death and resurrection and ascension and enthronement of your son. And so when we have those moments where we feel like all of sin internally and externally has overtaken us, help us to remember the victory of the cross and that we are seeing the slow but sure outcome of that victory. But we in our finite lives need to simply be patient and wait for the fullness of consolation to come because you will prove true to your promises. And so, Lord, as we enter into communion now, we pray that you would bring all this to remembrance as we hold the bread and the cup that symbolize the body and blood that has purchased us from our sin and from the kingdom of darkness. Lord, help us to look at these two symbols and to realize the power that you have, the power that you have to have ransomed every soul in this room that is yours and brought them into your kingdom and made them part of your family. Help us to remember all this, to remember your omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence, your power and your strength, your infinite character, so that we might rest in that when we feel small and weak and finite. Help us to remember you. So we pray that you would do that now by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.